What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Brevity Code Podcast. Today, joining me is Travis Brasher. He's the CEO of Travis Matthew. And uh, we have a very candid and I think great conversation about some of the the aspects that you don't normally hear of uh, from behind a fantastic and influential brand. I hope you enjoy today's show. On the Brevity Code Podcast, we'll explore a wide range of topics from the very people that give form and color to our world. We'll hear from artists, brand builders, industry leaders, pro athletes, fitness and endurance coaches, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and many others. Through their actions, they enrich us with their vision, creativity, and bravery. Our guests have all been successful by flying in the face of conventional wisdom. We'll learn from them the ways in which we can apply that very knowledge to our own path and toward our own self-fulfillment. So what's up, Travis? How are you, man? I'm good. Good. Just uh, hanging out here at the office and uh, looking forward to catching up with you. Yeah, man. Thank you. I know you're like one of the busiest dudes I know. So uh, thank you for squeezing me into your into your schedule today. Um, so you know, jumping right in, um, you know, you have a, a very interesting career path, and you're with a very um, you know sort of influential and formative company um, in the golf space, and certainly now transitioning into the lifestyle space. And I think. There's a lot of good business lesson, and and um, I want to just jump right in with you. So, going and we're going to kind of skip around a little bit. So you know, kind of forgive the path here. But um, when did you join Travis Matthew, or were you a founding partner? I was a founding partner. Uh, the main uh, owner was a guy named John Kruger, who uh, I met at the country club that I was working at at the time. And uh, in the first couple of years. We went out and hired a few people to uh, get the business going. I stayed at uh, the country club I was at. And uh, the main reason for that is we had no idea what the hell we were doing. So we needed to hire a couple people who we thought didn't know what they were doing. So. <laughs> yeah. So in the early days, um, you know, let's before we even get there. So let's just give me a, a, a couple sentences on, you know, the concept behind the brand, why it came to be, I mean, were you essentially scratching your own itch? Was there something you guys felt that you weren't seeing out there? And, you know, you as a teaching pro was annoying you in the apparel space that you felt like you needed to conquer. What, what was that driving force? The main thing was there was all this, we'll call it golf apparel at the time that was oversized fluorescent, Anything that you would wear on the golf course, you would, the minute you left the golf course, you couldn't wait to rip it off and put on some normal clothes. So you didn't look like a total nerd if you uh, left the golf course. Yeah. And it's a weird mentality that golf's always had. It's almost like if you go to the golf course, you can wear a costume. And we just thought there was an opportunity to, to basically have normal clothes heavily influenced at the time by the surf industry. I was wearing like Hurley and Quicksilver and Volcom to work, but the fabrics were really thick and heavy and not really conducive to playing golf in, but the styling was more in the realm of what I wanted. I just felt like, listen, if you could make those type of clothes with better fabrications, uh, we could have something. So, man, I feel like that's one of those ideas that's sort of sitting in front of everyone's face, you know, like that's such a duh thing. Like it's so good. And it's, it's staring everyone in the face, um, but but no one was acting on it. Um, was it, it? But at the same time, it's it's such a foreign concept because 
here you are saying, you know, you're taking surf influence, but, but you're, you're trying to dress the old establishment, right? You're trying to dress guys like my dad and, and, and an older clientele too, or, or was that not it? Or, or how, how was it, you know, when it played out as a business plan or a concept, like, okay, yeah, we're going to make this sort of, you know, technical fabrics and we're going to, we're going to make some more slimming, you know, hip clothes and we're going to sell them into, you know, golf specialty. I got That's a hard sell right there, especially to get someone to maybe invest in that concept as much as you go like, yeah, duh, this, we, the market needs this. But when it came down to someone writing a check or, or the earlier, you know, country clubs coming on to adopt that, was that met with a lot of resistance or was that like, oh my God, you guys, this is the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, definitely the, the former, not the latter. It was, <laughs> it was met with a lot of resistance. I mean, I, I guess there's a couple of questions there. I'll start with the check because that's always the most important. It so is. The, uh, the check was a long time coming. John and I, John Kruger and I had had a probably two-year, three-year relationship at that point where I was giving him golf lessons and we were becoming better and better friends really each and every day. And there was a couple other ideas. We looked at buying a, not we, let me rephrase that. He looked at buying a, a country club and then I would potentially manage and run that for him. That ended up falling through. We looked at partnering with a couple of buddies here who own a restaurant called Mahe. And we were going to help expand that into multiple locations. And that didn't work out. And then lastly, <laughs> I probably the third time I came to him, I had run into a buddy, Travis Johnson, and John, who was living with John Mallinger, who was a really good friend of mine. And Travis had this idea that was already in motion. And when he told it to me, it was literally exactly what I just described to you which was we need to make some clothes that you can wear on and off the course at the end of the day. And so that, that part of it helped bring it together. But then it was, Hey, John, I have no business plan. I have no idea how we're going to make this, yep. but would you mind giving me 250 grand so we can go hire a couple of people that might be able to figure it out? And he did. <laughs> it was crazy. That's crazy, man. Cause it, it doesn't, it doesn't really work like that. Right. In the real world. I mean, you had a relationship with someone who had, deep pockets and he's a he's a super bright guy and, and obviously got the concept but you know short of i feel like a fairly exhaustive process the, the the money raising part is an extremely challenging part of you know early uh entrepreneurial trials and and oftentimes a lot of guys don't get off the ground right there they might have a great idea they just can't get the check yeah so i mean that was when we all look back at the end of it, that's why we've been successful. You and I have talked about this a little bit in the past and there were probably three or four key moments in the company where the combination of the first steps, always the check. We had 250 grand to build a really a three person team that a salesperson, a design person, and we, a general manager at the time to just even understand how to go get some product made. We did that. So he was impressed that we could pull that off. And then he had promised another 250 at that point if we could get it, get product and samples in really to go sell. Then we got the samples. And then it was another 250 grand. And then it was, hey, go to these 25, 30 country clubs and prove that you can, that they want the product. And to answer your second question, that was really challenging. <laughs> between, between Travis Johnson and myself and Ryan Ellis, who's kind of the key part of the company, 
then and now and him going out, he came from the surf industry, literally knew nothing about golf. So you've got this surfer coming in trying to sell golf clothes that are so far off what they were looking at. So when they actually, when a couple of clubs bit and Roger Dunn was a huge one, that's not a club, that's a local retail store, but they took a chance on a season one. And when that happened, John got more confidence and then it was another $500,000 check. And you know where it goes from there. Then it was a couple million dollar checks when you're, and the more you're, the more you're selling in those first few years, the more you're losing. Yeah, <laughs> so man. Bigger. No, no doubt. Um, which so this also begs a, a question. So Roger Dunn, primarily a golf superstore, right? They do they do like hard goods and soft goods. I don't yeah, know primarily I, hard, primarily hard goods, but definitely their soft good business is substantial. Okay, so they take a season. They take a, a seasonal approach to you. They give you a test order. I'm sure they don't roll out all all doors, as we say in the industry. Um, did they have the conversations with you like, okay, where are we going to put you? Like wh- there's n- <laughs> this, you know, this is going way back, right? Cause now you're still in there with the old established brands and all the, the golf ball brands that are also selling clubs. And, and now they're making a, a, a horrible polo, like a gigantic oversized polo, like you were saying, um, how are those conversations met? And it's gotta be the same, whether it was Roger Dunn and, or, you know, the, the golf pro shops, like, where do we put you? Like, how does that work? Or- well, it was pretty easy then because it was about 40 polos on a round or so. <laughs> it wasn't much of a conversation, but I think the, the gist of it was if you walked into Roger Dunn at that time, or let's pick another country club, it was in Shady Canyon early on. If you walked into one of those clubs, it was literally a sea of bright pink, bright yellow, so if we had this, our first line was a world in black and white and it was black, white, and gray. That's it. Yeah. So when you put those 40 to 60 pieces in a golf shop, it actually stood out by not standing out. And yeah. so it was, it was kind of a, it was a pretty easy sell that first season. And that first line was honestly really, the fabrics weren't very good, but the designs for that time were, were really, really on point. What happened the second season is, they got very off point and that's when the business got real scary <laughs> because yeah. we followed that up with like this brown white collection. And it, that, that collection was a disaster actually and almost destroyed the business in season <laughs> two. Yeah. Right. You're only as good as your last line and you're, you know, your yeah. sell through, um, especially nowadays where everyone's kind of, you know, vying for that dollar. Um, I, what were those early days? Oh, well, one more thing. So give us give us a sense of the framework of time. We're talking, what, what year are we talking about here? So we hired people, and the company officially started on 7707. So that was kind of our, an ironic thing when the LLC went through. So we kind of adopted that, obviously, as our anniversary. It took us about six months to get people hired, and then product arrived mid two thousand eight let's call it and then we started sell we started shipping later in 2000 like at tail end of 2008 okay okay and so those are you've you've kind of touched on some of the early days as far as you guys you know you coming from a, a teaching professional to you know the guy doing your sales ryan um you know coming in from the surf business not knowing anything about golf you've got john who's a, a really brilliant guy but doesn't you know doesn't know anything about how to create an apparel company and you've 
I'm assuming Travis Johnson, well, he was on the Canadian tour, right? He wasn't, he wasn't a designer. He didn't know anything about like apparel creation either. No. So he, we hired this guy, Gary Richards. Spike was his, uh, self-proclaimed nickname. So Spike, uh, basically came in, set up the whole business. He was the one who hired Ryan because they had a relationship. Spike had worked for Colt which was a surf brand that was started over in Australia that they brought to the U S at one point. And so Spike was on and off with us for the first five, six years and was a huge part of getting the business off the ground. And then Travis Johnson was kind of in and out of the business in the first two years. And then really the big turning point was, you know, I just described that second line. We kind of got in a place where Kruger was going to have to write another million dollar commitment to the business at this point. And we knew we needed somebody from the industry that really could help us not only design the product, get it in the right accounts, get us to the better manufacturers. So we ran into this guy, Chris Rosasson, and he had had a brand called Rosasson. And so Chris came on, I believe it was late 2009, early 2010. And he really came in and got things turned around with Ryan and Joey and the rest of the team. And I came, I came on full-time like six months later. And what were those early days like for you? I mean, were you, your role specifically, were you sort of the catch-all? Like if, if there was a void that was happening in a particular department, did you just put that cap on that day or did you have a pretty narrow channel? I mean, I can't imagine if it's early days, you got to be doing everything. No, Yeah. To your point, no one's got a narrow channel, but Chris was the, you know, entitled the CEO at that time. And then he, but he was doing literally everything from designing the products in the first year with Travis Johnson's assistance and then after Travis left after that first year, he was doing that on his own with Ryan's assistance and feedback from the sales side. So they were really on the product sales side and I was more on the operational side. So, so here's the question. So you had a pretty cushy job at a, not, not, not discounting or, or down. <laughs> so here you are a golf pro, you're outside every day, you know, you're hobnobbing with dudes that are, you know, pretty well healed. They're great guys. They're great, great in business. You're probably learning a lot from them. Now you're a year or two into this, you know, firestorm of starting something new, learning a business on the fly, making mistakes daily. Do you have those moments where you're just like, what in the hell did I sign up for? And why am I doing this? And I want to run out the door and go back to the golf course. Did you have, did you have those moments or you know, it's crazy. I never had that moment that I wanted to go back. I think I, you get so, I, A, I was so excited to have an opportunity to be entrepreneurial. So that was a big part of it. Uh, you know, I, the last five years I was at Seacliff, which is where I was the pro, I was just looking to get out. And I, I wanted to be able to make my own decisions and see the impact of those decisions. And so I never did want to go back. I'm not going to say that there weren't times when I was scared shitless because I certainly was multiple yeah. times in those first few years. But my entire goal the whole time was I'm never going to go back and give golf lessons like that. That fear of not wanting to do that really drove me. Yeah, I think that's a super powerful thing. I mean, you know, re- relating the same story, I, I left a perfectly good job. Um, I had two great bosses being the vice president of marketing at Massimo and Massimo himself were really 
kind to me. And, you know, when I took that leap of faith, you know, I wasn't making any money there, but I certainly, it was just a, there was no going back. There was no going, I wasn't going to get that job again. It was a fantastic job. <laughs> and I don't think I would have hired me back. So, so certainly <laughs> fear was, fear was a driving force and it's a powerful thing. So, yeah, Kroger's. Yeah, it was funny. When I took the job, Kroger's, we had the, obviously have the pay discussion and I'm like, well, I need to make as much money as I'm making at the country club. And he just looked at me and said, it's not happening. You can either burn, he goes, you can burn your lifeboat and come do this or yeah. just stay at the club. And yeah. it's, it's what you just described. You have to have that sense of desperation. It's crazy, man. I think there's a few of those moments in our life that's super pivotal um, you guys, and we'll get into the sale eventually, the eventual sale to Callaway. But I think you got to look at you burning your lifeboat to you guys having an exit and just thinking like, oh, that was what a crazy ride it's been. And what a, what a, what a wonderful outcome. And again, I don't want to get too far ahead because I, I want your comments on that, but we'll come back to that. Going back a little bit more here. Did you ever have, were you good enough to kind of have like tour player aspirations was that something you were working towards and then you kind of fell back to being a teaching pro or like what or no, what? not when I was, not past age 15 no <laughs> <laughs> i uh, i was really good i was a really really good junior golfer and up until i was about probably just turned 16 and kind of discovered some other things in life like women and yes, beers, yes. and i grew like six inches and <laughs> by the time at the end of my 16th birthday i was fucking awful so yeah at that at that point any professional golf aspirations were gone they were gone were you um were you i mean i I don't know how close in age you are to tiger like did you ever play some tournaments yeah i played i played quite a bit with tiger he i was like 13 or 14 when he was 10 he actually beat me i it was pretty funny so the way junior golf works it's 11 and under is an age group and then like 12 to 14 is and i was like dominating 14 the 14 year old age ranking in Southern California. And he moved up in a tournament when he turned 11 and he beat me by like five shots. And it was like the first eye opening experience. I mean, he was literally like four foot 11 and I'm out there. I'm like five ten, and I'm thinking I'm all that. And this little nerd with glasses (laughs) comes along and just beats the shit out of me. So yeah, that was probably the first part where I realized this isn't going to work out long term. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm reading his book now, and I just uh, – well, it's unauthorized biography version, but it's it's insane. I don't know if you read it, but just the, the, the way he was groomed from literally being months old and watching Earl sit there and, and practice his swing. But anyway, that that's cool. Um, so just backing up a bit here some more, before there was even a Travis Matthew – so Travis Johnson came – I don't. I, I'm. I think you know this story by now. But uh, so my, you know, our dads at Virginia Country Club. That you know, everyone's kind of a little posse that runs around there. A bunch of guys that made the tour. Um, you know, my dad suggested to Travis Johnson, "Hey, you should go talk to my son. He's doing his thing at Paul Frank. You should get some advice if you want to launch, you know, your line." So Travis comes to me and like, "Hey, you know, so what does it take? This and that." And I go, "Let me get this straight. You want to start a golf com- or a lifestyle golf brand?" And I get the concept. It's cool. But, you know, you're playing on the Canadian tour. You're a hell of a golfer. Maybe you got a shot. Maybe you don't. But you you can't do both. And uh, and I also remember right around that same time, we at Paul Frank, John and I were 
oh, we were hacks, man. We were so bad. Uh, and but we were really into golf, and you know we knew John Merrick and John Mallinger and Peter Tomasulo and, and Jamie Mulligan, and all those guys, and we started a golf line, which is just the worst idea, Travis. If you think about it all the way through, like we had a golf line that was like, you know, super hipster indie kid, like you know the kids that wore skinny jeans were trying to get, and here we are putting tons of marketing resource, uh, launching a golf line. Who we had no business doing that. We just really enjoyed the game, and so all this was kind of happening at the same time. It's kind of funny, and I remember anyway. So we worked with those guys for about a year, and I remember going like, first of all, I had no idea the out-of-pocket expense to support several tour players for all the tournaments and all the gear they're going to need. I mean, we just grossly underestimated what those product costs, and we weren't in the space either. We're, we're, you know, I think you guys conversely were kind of in the business, so it wasn't terribly difficult to go pull some stuff off the rack but we were making all specialized stuff so bad on us on the roi because we we had no placement in in golf retail we had, i don't know what we were thinking it was fun we went to some tournaments and had a good time with those guys and all that but um but i remember ultimately just telling uh, travis johnson like dude don't do it like you you got a shot to be a, a pro golfer i mean to, to the seat that i was in he did anyway and but you know, so just think if you wouldn't have listened to me, uh, a lot would have not happened. Yeah. He, you know, it's, there's so many components of that story that are funny <laughs> to me. Cause one, I was a huge fan of you and you didn't know this obviously at the time we didn't even know each other, but I've told you this before growing up in Huntington beach. And, you know, I had met Paul Frank a couple of times, but really had heard about you and how you grew the business and, had a ton of respect for that. And then I'm friends with Mallinger and he had told me, yeah, I'm going to start wearing Paul Frank. And I remember we had just started talking about like the idea at that point, Travis Johnson and I, and it was just conceptual. And I remember thinking, God, their stuff's really good and cool. And that was a big thing for me. Like I saw that when I think we can do this with our relationships in the business. And I think we can get this, product in places because when I saw the tour players wore it, they look so much better than everybody else. Yeah. And so you guys actually did a great job with the product. And, <laughs> you know, I think it just comes down to it's, you know, like anything in business, it wasn't your focus. And we see that all the time. Now, if we go into a category and we're not highly focused on it, both from a resource and brain power standpoint, it typically goes by the wayside. Yeah, I think you're. I mean, I think you're hitting on something that's, you know, I think a lot of brands have aspirations. Hey, we're we're red hot and and we want to go capitalize on this category. But I, I agree with what you're saying. If you don't if you don't approach it with that full concentration and or the marketing support and the staffing support, I think ultimately that's going to be a lesson in failure and, and going to get chalked up as a in the loss column for a business. So yeah, I think. I think you're right about that. And we certainly, we stubbed our toe. I mean, yeah, it was fun. Um, you know, whereas when we when we took the approach vastly different, we, we launched a small parlor kids line, like we went full bore on the marketing and hired, we hired a sales staff ahead of time and really put some design focus, you know, specifically there. And it became one of our fastest growing divisions. So yeah, there's a perfect example. Um, That's, you couldn't have put it any better. <laughs> yeah, man. So... So talking about, you know, tour players in, in that game. So here's another frontier for you guys. Like, right, you 
you you played against Tiger. You probably knew some other guys coming up. You know all the Long Beach guys that were now on the tour. Uh, you kind of kind of came up in the same school with. But you guys, you guys got Bubba Watson early on, right? Like, how did that, yeah, that come a, to be? That was a random. So the tour thing was really a lot of John Mallon, primarily John Mallinger, and you know when he got done wearing your guys' stuff and we kind of brought him into the, he was one of the first people into the company and basically a founder of the company. And so his role was obviously to wear it on tour, but he also got Tommy Armour to sign up with us. So Tommy was like this legendary, a legendary name, but kind of this legendary personality too. Yeah. It was, he was the middle-aged kind of badass on the PGA tour. So it was a great fit for our brand. And a lot of the other guys wanted to wear it at that point. So the words started trickling out after, you know, let's call it a year and a half. And I guess basically what happened is Bubba was at a, Bubba's agent was at a pub crawl and she saw a Travis Matthews shirt and was like, Oh, that's really cool. Let's reach out to them. And so when she reached out, the agent was also for Jeff Ogilvy. And we wanted Jeff Ogilvy because he was really good at the time. So he started wearing our stuff without us paying him for a couple tournaments and we couldn't afford them. And I'm like, well, what about Bubba? Because he hadn't won yet. And but I knew A, his name's Bubba, which that's pretty pretty good marketing right there. Yes. He hits he hits it a mile. He's left-handed, quirky personality. I'm like, if this guy ever wins, he's gonna blow up. And so we signed him and uh, took a pretty big it was a pretty big jump for us at that point from a compensation standpoint to your point. It was it was expensive. And uh from there, he ended up winning about four or five months later. Fast forward another six to eight months, he wins the Masters, probably hits one of the most famous golf shots of all time. And, yeah, the company's off and running again. I mean, but that's insane. What you just said, it's insane. Like, what are you guys thinking? Is he starting to – so, yeah, like on a whim, right? You know he's good. He's kind of quirky, so he maybe he fits the brand from the left-to-center approach you guys have. Now he start. He's on board. You took a risk financially, huge. People need to understand that. Like, you're still in startup mode. Every dollar counts. And here you guys are taking a flyer on an unproven player. That's that's huge. Like, that's a gravity moment for the company. You're in uncharted territory. And then he starts winning. Are you guys like, oh my god, like this is crazy? Like, what? What's and what's the effect? of him in your stuff is he's, well, you look like a superhero, right? You look like the, the world's smartest marketing guy at that point. Yeah. It's called, you can be really smart when you're really lucky. So I think <laughs> basically there were a couple moments when you look back and obviously look back at your company and you have to have incredibly good fortune, whether it was meeting Chris Ross Austin because we were looking for a trade show booth and he happened to have one for sale. Wow. And that turned into hiring him. So that wow. whole that whole moment basically saved our company and reinvigorated it. Then fast forward two years, we're signing this guy. And like, like you just said, he wins the masters and it's like, Holy shit. Like, I mean, that's just pure luck. I mean, picking a golfer is no different than going to the racetrack and like going, Hey, I like that jockey. And I like the name of that horse. So I'm going to put, you know, the next case, a hundred thousand dollars on it. So it was, it was pretty crazy, but that's where, I mean, that's where Kruger was really the, he was the perfect owner of the company 
and that he was always willing to take a risk, especially if that risk would be fun. And I know that sounds crazy, but this was a hobby for him at this point. You know, if he could go sponsor a golfer and be part and feel like he was part of that and that brought him joy, he did it. And if we went and bought a, we did another, the craziest thing we probably did in the business is, I think you know this is, we were doing about $400,000 in sales and we went out and bought a $650,000 tour bus. <laughs> totally <laughs> makes that, sense. Yeah. 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 It makes perfect sense that had a rooftop deck and that's all because we went down to the horse races together and saw a bunch of fraternity kids partying on top of an RV and we're like, holy shit, we got to have one of those. And then that morphed into bringing this thing to golf tournaments, member guests, member members, you know, next thing we know, this thing's the most prof. A year and a half later, it's the most profitable part of our company. We're getting our clothes on forty five hundred new prospects every year. So it's just stuff like that. Like it's not like we sat around and had this perfect business plan for that. It was, there's fortune. So yeah, you know, you say that. I, I'm starting to think the more this picture comes together, too. There's there's a lot of certainly serendipity and sort of the synchronicity. But you guys are super maverick. I mean, that like. Just the the idea from hey let's let's take some of the surf culture influence and lifestyle aspects and apply it to golf and then there's like hey we get this tour player and that happens to blow up and then it's yeah okay we we saw this thing with the tour bus um, you know where we can turn this into a, a, a marketing you know event machine which also by the way spits off a lot of capital because it's it's a it's a mobile retail store that's. I just don't think like if when you think about all these things that are adding up that that's just luck and coincidence. I think that's a lot of really good insight and intuition and um and certainly forward thinking, but also I love like you're taking that fresh approach and perspective to an industry that was a bit of a sleeping giant for a market and you guys just happen to be the first ones to apply a different sort of mindset and philosophy to it. And I just think that's like part of your recipe for success there. And, you know, like you look, you look really great for it, but there was a lot of risk involved with everything you've said all the way through, you know, and so in you reaping the rewards. No, I agree. I, listen, you got a, a lot of, a lot of people at, to your point early on in the conversation have great ideas. You got to have two things. You got to have the financial resources to execute those ideas. And then you got to have the people to execute them across the board. And we always, you can't have the people without the financial resources. So it all comes back to a guy like John always being there. I didn't ever have to go to a bank and spend 30 days preparing a bunch of information. I would literally spend two hours and go, hey, John, this is what I think we should do. Here's what I think it can, re-. he would ask for factual, what he thought was factual data and, you know, how's this gonna be profitable? But we'd make a decision and go. And that's where we beat the competition at the end of the day is we could act quickly. And then we do have a very strict business culture of, trying to plan, communicate the plan, execute the plan, track the plan, which is where, where I think we're really good, and then adjust. Because if you're not tracking and adjusting in business, in my opinion, you're fucked. Yeah. Now, you're, now you are relying on instincts all the time and not, ju- not, not information. So I think the combination of all those things are, to your point, why we've had some success. Yeah. So let's we've painted the rosy picture and all that. 
there's a lot that goes wrong on the daily in a business, um, as you know. Can you cite an example or is there something that's particularly traumatic to you um, and or a situation or an initiative that's just flopped? Because I think it's important for people listening, you know, those in business and, you know, you hear the story, you're like, God, that's the luckiest son of a bitch I've ever heard. That's the greatest story I've ever heard. But there's a lot of fail. Like you said, your second golf collection almost killed you. And and again, coming from my place in the I know that first well, for, or firsthand, it, it, it's it's you're running the razor's edge the whole way through. Has there ever been something you're like, God, this is going to be a home run, and then you pour some resource and it's just bombs, or you're like, what? Yeah, I mean the 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 latest example is we've opened at this point like ten company owned retail stores. So the first one was a raging success in Fashion Island, and then we opened another one in San Diego, and that was successful but not as successful and then the third one was in scottsdale and that killed it I mean, there's been a couple others early on that were close to being catastrophic for the company but you get through those things because you have a sense of urgency to get it figured out and everybody pulls together and you do it i think to honestly to answer your biggest question though i think i'm always going to bring it back to people you know there's there's been when Travis Johnson left the company, you know, to, to discuss that situation, you're certainly sitting there going, can we do this? You know, this, yeah. this guy, this was his, a big portion of this was his ID idea. Can we execute this? But it also motivated us to make sure we could figure it out and that it would be successful. And, but that's a moment where you're scared shitless for sure. Yeah. And, and the reason you're scared shitless is because, from the public perspective and from retailer perspective and for your particular, you know, your, your country club and your golf accounts from an outsider, from an outsider perspective, it's completely different than inside the building in that when someone's name is on the product on the exterior as a logo or a signature, the perception is that one person one singular force is driving the whole design direction and and this sort of genie behind the curtain when in fact, as you know full well, it takes a team of a hundred people <laughs> to to really put forth a a thoughtful, you know, concise uh, brand strategy and brand message. but when 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 it comes out in the newspaper that a founder is leaving, it can certainly cause a lot of dismay. And in doubt in the minds of the retailers that are supporting you, and to a certain extent, your fans who think, oh, this isn't going to be the same. But again, they're just not realizing that there's, it, there's a lot of people that, that pour their heart into something. And it's something that is, um, is certainly inherent with both of our examples. Um, with namesakes, you know, it's one of the risks that you, that you run instead of calling yourself the, uh, the ABC Golf Company. You know, you're not going to have that problem. No, you're, you hit it spot on. The perception's reality and on the outside. Like you said, you know what's going on in the building, but we did have to overcome that in those first couple of years. And, you know, you got to make sure your product's evolving and getting better. You got to make sure it ships on time. You got to make sure that when things do go wrong, you're giving incredible customer service. And you got to make sure that you're you're doing what, at the end of the day, what you believe in and what the team believes in. And, we, I think we did that. So, 
Yeah, well, in, in proofs, proofs in the in the recent sale um, to Callaway, right? One hundred and twenty-five million. Is that what I'm understanding? That is the number. That's insane. <laughs> um, what is? And again, you know, I have my own opinions on uh, an exit of a business, and, and we sit in the similar seat um, in in that regard. What what in what has been positive, and to the to the extent you can discuss it or sh- want to share, has not been your favorite thing as a result of uh, an acquisition from a larger entity um, taking over purchasing your business. Yeah. So obviously, well, one just for full disclosure, I'm still employed by Callaway, so I have to be very careful. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> You know, to, to answer your question, when we did the deal, my intention was not to stay very long. And I was pretty burnt out just from the 10 years and the, you know how a transaction is. It, yeah. it, it takes a pretty big toll on your life for a year. And so I was ready to kind of chill out and spend some time with the family. And I met Chip Brewer, who's the CEO of Callaway. And I've really developed a nice relationship with him. And He's, he's been absolutely true to his word, which was, listen, we're buying an apparel. We're a hard goods company. We're buying an apparel company and we don't know what we're doing. So we want to support you and we're going to stay out of your way as much as we possibly can. And, you know, it's been a year and a half now and he's lived up to that word every day when I need help. So operationally right now, we're asking for a lot of their help because they're significantly better at that than we are. And it's been great. And when we don't need help, you know, with design of product, how we sell it, how we market it, they've stayed out of it. And it's been a really great partnership so far. And candidly, I didn't expect it to be. So that's, that's why I'm still here. I'm having a lot of fun. The hard part, which I've shared with him is I'm not an owner anymore. That's the reality. And having that mentality, you have, I, I don't know how to not have that mentality. Yes. But it's, yes. but at the same time, I'm not. So the reality doesn't match the mentality. And it's something sitting here today I'm still trying to figure out. I, I wish I had a good answer there. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough thing. Um, it's obviously a, it's a, it's a great place to be operating from, you know, again, coming from, you know, earlier days when, you know, the, the flame was really put to you. And now, you know, you've taken the chips off the table um, you're in a more comfortable position, but that said, you know, I know you're a driven guy, you know, as, as proof to the success of your business. So it's gotta be a little weird, just that sort of contradiction, you know, sort of the entrepreneurial side of you still wants to put it it just, it just put it in fifth gear and go. Um, but you have someone that you answer to now. Um, and it sounds like though he's understanding, um, and embracing the, the, you know, all the things that are wonderful about the brand that he bought. So, you know, you're happy in your role, you're happy in your position. What, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that are now uh, post acquisition, sort of the future product launches, if, if you're allowed to disclose them at this point. Uh, and, and also, do you feel like, you know, Callaway is, is enabled you to enter new product categories or is it really, are they just trying to say, Hey, you guys kind of do your thing. Let's not 
let's not spread this thing and become a label slapping exercise. Like, what does that look like? Yeah, great question. Very timely. So right now we started like Bob McKnight and his son, Robbie and myself started this brand Quater, which you're a little bit familiar with probably three years ago now. And as part of the transaction, it was, it was a belt company primarily. And part of the transaction, they acquired that as well. So that's really evolved since then. And now it's Travis Matthews accessory brand. So it's socks, underwear, belts, uh, we're hats, and we're really getting heavy into the shoe side of the business. So we've got some really exciting things that I can't share right now that are coming out in this next year from a product and category standpoint. But the emphasis now for Quater is we're really going to take on the shoe industry. And we feel like we've got a couple ideas there that are kind of similar to Travis Matthew. The main difference is Travis Matthew, we always say we're going to put design first and performance second. Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, they're always going to put performance first. And that's where we found that doesn't mean performance isn't a critical part of Travis Matthew because it is. But we're going to make sure that our designs are what carry the brand. With Quater, we're going to put performance first and design second. Again, design is incredibly important. But if we make shoes, you can't make shoes and not have them be comfortable at the end of the day or you're, you're going to fail. So that's the performance side that we're really focused on. And we went out and hired somebody that's an expert in that, which we couldn't have done without Callaway. And they're putting some significant marketing dollars at into it at the tail end of the year. Well, to your point, we'll probably go hire a couple brand ambassadors. And, you know, I think you'll, you'll see a full scale launch of that early 2020, late 19. So pretty excited about that part of it. Yeah, that's super exciting. What from a, from a marketing standpoint, from your, you know, your tour roster, is that, is that at a satisfactory level for you guys? Do you see that number increasing? Are you happy with the, the guys you have on board and, and the, and the, I guess the level of involvement that you have right now with your toe into your exposure with the PGA tour? Yeah, it's, it's got too big. That's a great question. And we've backed it down. We got like 10 guys probably a couple of years ago. And when we first started, we were very unique in that element of we picked people that we knew represented the brand and we kind of didn't care how well they played. You know, Bubba was a bit of an exception to that. He was probably the first person we didn't really have a relationship with going into it. And, you know, candidly, it was a challenge that constantly presented itself. So we kind of learned from that and went back to, Hey, let's make sure we have guys that represent the brand that we have relationships and friendships with, and that's going to be more important to us. So yeah, we're really happy with where the team is today. We have five guys right now on the PGA tour, great relationships with all of them represent the brand. Well, and we're going to keep it somewhere in that probably three to five person range because we want it to be aspirational. And when you get it on too many people out there, it loses that. And I want other guys on tour to want to wear it. Yeah. We may not feel as a great fit, but you, you keep that, that brand integrity. So I, yeah, I'm very excited where we are with tour. And the other part of our business, that's really kind of blowing up right now is our partnership with Nordstrom's. So I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things we haven't talked about is from day one, 
we've really tried to be cognizant of being rooted in golf, but not being a golf brand. And Nordstrom's has allowed us to start realizing that vision by putting categories in their store that are outside of polos and shorts. So, and we're having great success there. So outerwear, long sleeve woven, short sleeve wovens, board shorts, all those different categories. We're getting a new consumer that's never heard of Travis Matthew walking into Nordstrom's and not just seeing a golf brand. So huge evolution for the brand that way too. Yeah, I, I think it's so... Sorry um, for the commercial. <laughs> no, no, man, I listened. It is what it is. I, I think it's a very unique play that the brand has had in its life cycle where, again, first, here you are bringing surf culture and SoCal lifestyle into the old establishment being the golf stores. Now you come full circle, you know, nearly a decade later and you're on front and center nesting table. You're a, you're a, a prominent player at, at Nordstrom, which is a premier fashion forward retailer coming from this sort of grass between your toes perspective. And I think that's, I mean, it's, it's a credit to the brand. It's, it's really incredible though. Now you've, you've conquered one business and you sort of end around it back into yet another. And I mean, again, I think, how are you viewing the, the competition there? Has that, has that changed or, or is Nordstrom able to put complimentary brands around you now as the player? What does that merch mix look like? Yeah. So when we first started with Nordstrom's, I'd walk in and see it and like the, we're in the sportswear section of Nordstrom's, but I would see it sitting next to Nike or we really, they had a really tiny, they called it a golf section and it just killed me. Yeah. And I, I'd walk in there with Ryan. I'm like, we have to get out of here. Like, if we're going to keep being in this part of the section, I'd rather just not sell there and I'd rather open more retail stores. Yeah. So yeah. we, Ryan Ellis, who's the president of our company and just doesn't get nearly, you know, cause you've been here. Yep. <laughs> he, he doesn't get nearly enough credit at the end of the day. I tell people this all the time, man, he is Travis Matthew and he's done an incredible job developing that relationship with Nordstrom's and making sure we've hired two people who their entire job is to go out to the Nordstrom's, train the staff, make friendships with the manager to make sure we're next to Peter Millar or we're next to, you know, whatever complimentary brand it is that we want to, Hugo Boss, who we want to compete with. I don't want to sit next to Nike and Adidas because that's not who we are. So, you know, whether it's Billy Reed or some of these other brands, we want to, we want to be right next to them and we want to beat them. So we've been able to do that and, it's been, that's been really cool and fun. Agreed, man. And and you guys continue to, to make those crazy strides and it's fun to watch this. Um, you know, the other thing too, that strikes me, you guys were doing tremendous volume, you know, super successful business. And this is primarily or completely a domestic play, right? Like, so again, I look at, for us at Paul Frank, we became an international global brand as part of our strategy, part of the initial strategy was let's not any let anyone know what our zip code is. So we always hear stories like, oh yeah, that's that fashion brand from Tokyo or, oh no, no, I hear they're UK based or no, they're from Australia. No. And we never, from a marketing perspective, like to correct that because we thought it was kind of fun to play this sort of, you know, ambiguous game as to where we were really from. You guys have taken kind of a totally different approach was let's just really be good at 
the United States. Is there future opportunity for international, or is that already kicked off since I've last heard, or what's the play for international? Yeah, cap- well, a couple things there. One, the only reason we didn't go international is we weren't smart enough. So <laughs> congratulations on that, because that shit is really hard. It's hard. <laughs> so we, uh, we kept it easy, because that's all we knew. So Callaway obviously has a credible international reach. So we're launching the brand full scale in Europe, uh, Japan. Less, a little bit in South Korea. We have a great Canadian business that we, that is one part of, we've been in North America for pretty much the life of the brand. So we do have a really strong business in Canada. So yeah, it's in the next three to five years, you're really going to see it go international because that's where they can really help and, and be additive and where we're weak. So. Right. And I'm, I'm sure that was, you know, baked into the purchase price to sell in that white space that, you know, Callaway knows that they can, they can probably clobber it once they get that, uh, international machine rolling. But, um, but you know, that's cool. Um, so any, any ideas or thoughts on things like a women's line or does that get sort of into that dilutive territory we've touched on where you just feel like it's just not something we want to tackle as a brand or or am I am I hitting on something is it going to happen the reality is listen we got so much growth opportunity in the men's side and we feel like we have an understanding of that that world and that business and we really don't the women's business to me is so saturated and we don't understand it And so the resources and effort to go hire a whole separate team, going back to what we talked about earlier in the conversation and give it its proper due. Mm -hmm. We just don't need to do that right now because we're having 50 to 60% annual growth. And we see that for years to come. And there's something to be said for being a boys club and, you know, not having women's product and the guy feeling like, Hey, this is just for me. So yeah, right now, the answer is no. Yeah, and I think that's a a very valid and, and a great answer. And I think, you know, your your male audience certainly appreciates that, whether consciously or subconsciously, it it is a brand for them. And you know, I look at you know, look at Lululemon, I look at that and say, Well, that's a women's play. I would never wear Lululemon as a heterosexual male. Like just wouldn't do it. <laughs> and <laughs> You know, much well, credit. Share that. <laughs> uh, right? I mean, I'm not saying it's it is what it is. I mean, they're obviously hugely successful. My opinion doesn't count for snot for them, but um, I I don't get it. I don't I don't see that crossover. Um, so I know you're 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 busy, dude. I just want to ask you a couple more questions here, and we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, I got a little segment on my on my podcast um, that's called Questions from My Kids. So I have three kids. Um, two of them just had birthdays. So my son, Jack, age 10, he wants to know what is the favorite part of your job? Uh, just interaction with people every day. And I don't think I ever realized how important it was to me until I was faced with the decision of leaving. And, you know, there's, there's, this is my family. So by far people. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's a good answer. And I, I feel some of that now that I am have departed from my company. I, I do miss building something and being part of it, having that camaraderie and the joking that goes on and the those relationships. That's, that's a great answer. Um, Josie, age nine, she <laughs> – I asked her this this morning. She said, um, ask him, uh, is, is the logo – the is your logo the alligator? 
<laughs> I wish. <laughs> yeah. totally was, I'd be hanging out with you right now in Boise. And just <laughs> but no, it's not the alligator. <laughs> it is not the alligator. Um, I was going to ask her to... A little side note to that, though. You know this, like being, especially coming from where you went... Ryan and I went to Asia uh, about a year ago. Every brand's got like an animal logo. And we're like, holy shit, we got to come up with something here. <laughs> we, we couldn't, the only thing we came up with is zebra. So that, that's, uh, <laughs> that would be our animal logo. So good. Yeah, I almost asked her to, I go, God, can you give him a different question? And I thought, no, we got to let that one rip. Um, and my son, uh, George, age five, wants to know, how old were you when you started the business? I was 35, 36. Man, and, and I'm sure what an incredible ride, one that you probably never anticipated nor could have even curated or thought about in a business proposal, you know, to, to from those early stages to where it is now. And, um it must be interesting for you to do some reflecting after the fact from the garage days through the sale to where you sit now. And as I can see on my Skype screen here, your, your rad office that was the ex-man cave. How, by the way, why is it not a man cave still? Uh, we ran out of space. So I had the biggest office here and I'm here the least. So I didn't feel like that was a very good message to send to the yeah. rest of the business. So I gave that to our CFO who's here the most. And I moved myself down here and bought a little poker table and I got a bar behind me and it's pretty nice. I can hide out. So yeah, it turned out uh, it's a win-win. Since I've moved here, I haven't seen the full creation of that building. So I got to, I got to get there and check that out. Well, it's funny. I I, want to ask you a question. I mean, we, we caught up a little bit in the beginning and what's uh, you're obviously an incredibly creative guy. You're doing this podcast now you've launched this, amazing brand that everybody that's literally world famous like what a prompted the move and then you know what's next for ryan yeah man well turning the mic back on me um i think for i kind of live by the the mantra or one of them that um is nothing good happens when you're comfortable and and so i like to push myself into areas of a healthy amount of discomfort. And Southern California is a very comfortable place. Perfect weather, no adversity, really. Um, you know, it sold the company and was, you know, not, not probably challenging myself to the extent where I felt I needed to be. And my wife and I had always talked about moving um, out of state or really giving our, our family kind of a different snapshot, a uh, different a different way of raising the kids. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with raising kids in Newport Beach, but, you know, you you know, being close to it, kind of what the deal is there. And um, <laughs> we, we wanted to just kind of give them something new, a different perspective. So what's more difficult than moving out to 10 acres of a hobby farm and, and learning about, you know, raising animals and, you know, all the water rights issues we're learning about out here and all the crazy stuff and having snow, having to learn how to drive in snow, just everything about it. Every day I step out, it's, 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 it's a different, different type of challenge for me. So I think on the lifestyle perspective, there's a ton of learning that I'm now getting, 
having removed myself from the zip code that I've known my whole life. So, and certainly there's things that I miss, um, and, 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 and therein lies part of the challenge. And the second thing, you know, career wise, um, yeah, I'm doing the podcast. I'm really enjoying the, you know, getting to talk like guys like you and, um, you know, and others, and I, I'm learning a ton and, and I hope there's a bit of, um, pay it forward value to what I'm doing. Just kind of putting this out there. I'm certainly not, you know, profiting or making any money doing this. I just really enjoy sharing um, great stories from the people that I know, that stories that are, 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 you know, worthy of being heard. So from that perspective, that's what's happening there. From a career perspective, I got to figure it out, man. I got to get back in the game. I'm I'm too young to, to be on my farm all day, every day. I have a beautiful, I stare at the mountains. Yesterday I was in waist deep powder snowboarding. That's all great. Um, but I do need to engage at a more meaningful level. And uh, I do miss some of the camaraderie you speak of. It's, it's not out here. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not involved in a, in a business intimately like that. I, I do do some advising as you know, but, um, I was just talking to my dad about this in Mexico and I do feel like I've, I've got another run in me. I just need to figure out what that feels like. What I, what I do know is I need to be passionate about it. As we've talked about on this podcast, I've got to be driven to want to do that. And, um, I need to find that area of focus so I can really pour myself into something. But, um, and, and I can tell you this too, not to be too long winded here, but, uh, I don't think I want to start something again. Like I got energy, I got energy reserves, but I don't think I want to go ground up. So I'm, I'm looking for the right thing to dive into. So that's right, man. I, I, a lot of things to say there, but the one thing I really took out of that is the being uncomfortable. You know, I'm kind of in that stage of my life. So it's very relatable for me and trying to figure out a lot of different aspects of my life. So that, 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 that answer probably helped me more than you know. So <laughs> cool. Pretty, pretty cool. You had the courage to do that, especially with your family. And, you know, I think you'll all be a lot better off for it, especially the kids and, and the relationship with your wife. It's, it's a pretty rad story, man. And yeah. I definitely, having said all that, you got to get back in the game. You got too much to offer. <laughs> oh man. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I, I do. I, I, you know, I will, I'll figure it out. And, uh, who knows our, our paths may cross and, uh, and I'd be uh, stoked to see you on my next visit, my man. Love, love it. All right, dude. Well, thanks again for taking the time today. Um, if uh, if you guys are listening out there and you're interested in learning more about Travis Matthew, the brand, I'm sure if you just type in at Travis Matthew on Instagram, Facebook, what have you, you're going to find it. TravisMatthew.com with one T, right? Anything else you want to share as far as uh, where guys can uh, – learn more about the brand or pick it up at retail or anything like that? No, I, we're, we're, we're good. We, I already gave <laughs> a two minute commercial in the middle of the podcast. So I want to just want to thank you, Ryan, for, for inviting me on. And it's, it's been awesome to catch up. And like I said, it's, it's, it's been, it's all about the people at the end of the day. And every time I've had time to spend some time with you, I, I just enjoy the shit out of it. So thanks, man. Oh, rad, man. Well, likewise, dude. So uh, you take care. All right. Thanks, Ryan. See ya.